You're listening to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Hosted by Rev Yearwood, Mustafa Santiago Ali, and me, Antonique Smith. Each week, we host important conversations with innovators, policymakers, cultural influencers, and movement leaders who are leading the way to a 100% clean energy and just world. to think 100% the coolest show on climate change. This is Antonique Smith, and you just listened to the Geechee Gullah Ring Shouters of Brunswick, Georgia, performing at the Ralph Mark Gilbert Civil Rights Museum in Savannah, Georgia, on the evening of February 12th. 
It was a special performance for a convening of organizations, including the Hip Hop Caucus, working on voting rights across the country. Living on the islands and shores of Georgia and South Carolina, they are experiencing rising sea levels from climate change right now. And while many fish and farm, the already rising water has flooded their croplands and destroyed oyster fisheries. On February 6th, the Natural Resources Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives held the first hearing on climate change in 10 years. The focus was on the impacts of climate change and the need to act. The Gullah communities are on the literal front lines of the impact. On today's episode, we are diving into what happened at this first hearing on climate change in the House in a decade and decoding some of the witness testimony and remarks from the committee members. Our Think 100% co-host and Hip Hop Caucus president and CEO, Rev Yearwood, was one of the witnesses who testified at the hearing. There are two panels during the hearing. The first panel had Governor Roy Cooper of North Carolina, a Democrat, and Governor Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, a Republican, who were both working to take climate action in their states. The second panel had Rev, along with Nadia Nazar of Zero Hour, who we've had on Think 100%, Elizabeth Yampierre of Uprose, and the Climate Justice Alliance, also a friend and collaborator with the Hip Hop Caucus. Dr. Kim Cobb of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Institute of Technology, and Paula DePerna of CDP North America. Those were the majority witnesses, meaning the witnesses called by the party in power, so the Democrats. The minority, which is the Republicans, had two witnesses, Derek Holly of Reaching America and Dr. Judith Curry of Climate Forecast Applications Network. You can find video of the full hearing on the Natural Resources Committee YouTube and Facebook pages. We're going to start with Rev's testimony at the hearing. Reverend Yearwood, floor is yours, sir. Thank you to Chairman Gahalva and the entire committee for having me here today. And thank you to the other panelists for your commitment to solving climate change, especially Love, Zero Hour, and Uprose. My name is Reverend Lennox Yearwood, Jr. I am the president and CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus, and all of you Republicans and Democrats are invited to be part of the Hip Hop Caucus. That was a little joke there to start off the testimony. <laughs> but let me get right to it. As Americans, we face challenges head on. Climate change is not a Democrat issue or a Republican issue. It is a human issue. This crisis is complex. It impacts all of us and future generations. And those with the least resources are impacted first and worse. But we know how to solve this crisis. We must make a just transition off of fossil fuels to a 100% clean, renewable energy economy that works for all. Many communities, cities, and states across our country are leading the way on climate solutions. I urge every member of this committee to visit places and people who have gone through climate disasters and visit communities, projects, and businesses that are implementing clean energy and climate solutions. When you visit these communities, 
it will become very clear that climate change is a civil and human rights issue. In 1960, four African-American college students sat at the Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, to desegregate the South. They were courageous beyond belief in standing up for equality. Today, young people like Nadia across the table from me and across this country are courageously standing up not only for equality, but for our existence. Climate change is our lunch counter moment for the 21st century. Young people are organizing, marching, and coalition building, and they are leading the call for solutions like a Green New Deal. They are doing it because they know that the science on climate change is undeniable, but also because, like all of us here today, they have watched as people have died in Hurricanes Harvey, Maria, Irma, Katrina, and Superstorm Sandy. They have seen the families who have lost everything to fires that had ripped across the West. They have been part of peaceful movements opposing fossil fuel developments led by the Lakota people at Standing Rock and the Gwich'in people in the Arctic Refuge. So the question is, what are you, as members of this committee, going to do? It is my prayer that you call up at least as much courage as young people standing up around the country, and that you act, you act now, and you act boldly and courageously. If this committee and both chambers of Congress don't urgently come together, put the people of this country first, put God first, and put your political party to the side to solve climate change. We don't make it beyond 12 years from now without huge amounts of death, destruction, and suffering. As an officer in the United States Air Force Reserve Chaplain Corps, I had to ponder the unique relationship between military and faith. In the military, we need our faith not only to strengthen us in battle, but we need our faith to guide us to do what is right. We need you to use your faith to guide you to do what is right. If you are approaching climate change as a partisan political issue, your faith is leading you astray. We, the American people, need you to have courage to do what is right. It is your courage. It is your courage. It is your courage that can put our country and the world on the path of solving climate change. In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Thank you, and may God be with you and with us all. The aspect of the hearing that we're going to focus on in this Think 100% episode was best summed up by Representative Raul Grijalva in his closing remarks of the hearing. Representative Grijalva is the chair of the committee and the representative for Arizona's 3rd District. Listen in. Before uh, adjourning the meeting, uh, let me thank the panelists, the second panel, uh, as 
What I did learn today that maybe we are not in full-blown, full-throated denial as we were. We're into a, a different phase, which is climate change avoidance. And what can we do to stall, change, tinker with the science, raise issues that uh, raise issues that uh, that are meant to uh, slow any solution seeking or policies or legislative initiatives as to deal with this very urgent problem. Perhaps a bigger tactical threat to the climate change movement than the climate deniers are the climate delayers, or better dubbed by Representative Grijalva, the climate avoiders. And that is what we are going to talk about today, the tactics of the climate avoiders. There are three prongs to the strategies used by climate avoiders. First, employment of lots of nonsense science. You could call it alternative science in the vein of Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts. We all have this one down. They vacillate between denial that climate change is happening or that it's caused by humans and acknowledge it's happening, but argue that there are too many risks and unknown consequences of trying to fix climate change, so it's better if we just let it be. Second, they pit the economy against the environment. But since at this point, the biggest businesses in the world are taking climate action because they've calculated that the threat of climate change is a threat to their bottom lines, climate avoiders can't point to business interests, except the fossil fuel industry, of course, as a reason for inaction. So they pit the economy against our climate by pointing to people and their energy bills, that basically we need to keep using fossil fuels to keep energy costs down for poor people, which is so not true. And third, they tap into racial biases. They portray the poor as people of color who cannot afford their energy bills, building off of racist stereotypes. Why is this strategy key to their approach? It serves to divide us, to put environmentalists and communities of color at odds. That's their playbook. So the three prongs of climate avoidance, one, nonsense alternative science, two, Pit the economy against climate action, in particular, the economic interests of the poor against climate action. And three, divide environmentalists and communities of color using racist stereotypes in which people of color are the face of poverty in America. None of these strategies are new, but they are constantly being adapted and updated. In a vacuum, if you're unaware of the fossil fuel industry agenda behind these strategies, the arguments sound logical and reasonable, but they are not. They are sophisticated manipulations that play into our biases. That's why we have to look deeper and dismantle these false arguments, false choices, and false equivalencies. Even more so, we have to dismantle the structure that divides us. Okay. So let's dive into how all these tactics were employed during the natural resources hearing. First, nonsense alternative science. The bottom line, their interpretive science always leads to the conclusion that doing nothing is better than doing something. It's chopped logic, but it can sound logical and is therefore persuasive or at minimum dilutes the clear and real science. We're going to rush through this part a little because the science is clear. Climate change is an urgent and existential threat, and 99% of climate scientists around the world conclude immediate and big action is needed, and the other 1% are paid by the fossil fuel industry. 
So here is a montage of some of the irresponsible science moments from the hearing. The woman's voice is Dr. Curry, who was asked to testify by the Republicans on the committee. Dr. Curry, um, your testimony reflects your wealth of knowledge on these issues and gives great insight into the climate change debate. In particular, you're discussing the increasing concern you have that the climate change problem has been oversimplified. Would you please elaborate on the problems that an expensive one-size-fits-all top-down type of solution might cause if, if implemented? Well, a whole host of unintended consequences, which um, some of which we can't even imagine right now. And because of that, you know, we, we need to avoid the hubris of thinking that we can predict what the future climate will do and that we can actually control the climate. Um, I think if we were somehow successful in putting all these policies into place and getting CO2 emissions down to zero, I think we would be unpleasantly surprised at how little impact this actually has on the things that worry us most about extreme weather events and things like that. Sea level rise is not, we're not going to turn that one on a dime, things like that. It's very tough to change the climate, has a whole lot of inertia in the system, many time scales. Pacific responds very slowly. So, you know, even with success, in reducing CO2 emissions down to zero. It would be a long time to turn the corner on having that actually impact the climate. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I do want to talk about science and evidence. Uh, uh, Professor Curry, are we experiencing the highest temperatures in the planet's history? No. Uh, when have we seen higher temperatures? Oh, um... <laughs> A very long time ago, um, and there's at least in some regions, they may be equally as high about a thousand years ago during the medieval warm period. So long before the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Uh, are we experiencing the highest levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide in the planet's history? No. Historically, we're a little bit on the low side, actually, in the current era. Are we experiencing the worst droughts in recorded history? <laughs> Uh, definitely not. Are we experiencing the most ferocious hurricanes in recorded history? Um, no. A, a study published in Lancet a few years ago noted that uh, cold weather kills far more people than warm weather. Uh, what do you see as the greater threat? Well, obviously it depends on the location, but I think the statistics overall across a, a wide variety of locations do support that cold weather kills more th than hot weather. Do you think we're causing the polar ice caps on Mars to melt? Uh, no. That's probably the sun, apparently. <laughs> well, the problem that I see with a massively ambitious top-down policy like the Green New Deal is... A, what if we can't do it? <laughs> what if we're wrong? And there's all sorts of things. It, it's not a problem that's amenable to that kind of a solution. That's why I uh, pro propose more of a bottom-up kind of approach um, so we can, you know, the so-called innovation dividend, lots of, try lots of different things, lots of solutions, and, you know, see what works. I have to really agree with you. I think that the ingenuity and hard work and creativity of the American people is a real solution here and should not be left out. We shouldn't 
like you said, top-down from government coercion, government control. That sounds too much like a Soviet five-year plan or something like that. There's no point in going point for point with all that was said there. But you heard the themes. It all adds up to a conclusion that the best course of action is to delay action, particularly delay any federal action since the audience here are federal policymakers. Here's a little more background on Dr. Curry. She was chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology until she retired in 2017. She runs a climate blog and has been invited by Republicans on several occasions to testify at climate hearings about uncertainties in climate understanding and predictions. Climate scientists criticize her uncertainty-focused spiel for containing elementary mistakes and inflammatory assertions unsupported by evidence. Dr. Curry is a regular climate denier blogger. She has further embarrassed herself and her former university by using refuted denier talking points and eventually admitting she hadn't even read the reports her points came from in the first place. She has agreed with Trump's description of climate change as a hoax, writing in 2016 that the U.N.'s definition of man-made climate change qualifies, quote-unquote, qualifies as a hoax. For contrast, we're going to listen to the scientist that the Democrats called to testify, Dr. Cobb. She is the Georgia Power Chair, Director of the Global Change Program, Advanced Professor in the College of Science and Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, currently at the Georgia Institute of Technology. While there were two scientists testifying with opposing viewpoints, which makes it appear that there are two valid interpretations of climate science, the reality is Dr. Cobb's testimony is validated by consensus from 99% of all climate scientists. My message today is simple. The data and the science could not be more clear. It's time to act. There are many no-regrets, win-win actions to reduce the growing costs of climate change. But we're going to have to come together to form new alliances in our home communities, across our states, and yes, even in Washington. I know I speak for thousands of my colleagues when I say that scientists all over the country are willing and eager to assist policymakers in the design of data-driven defenses against both current and future climate change impacts. As a professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology for the last 15 years, my research uses samples collected from the remote Pacific to reconstruct past climate variations. Our records are consistent with countless other records indicating that the rate and magnitude of recent climate change dwarf natural climate variability over the last millennium. The bottom line is that we are running out of time. Comprehensive federal policies are needed to speed the transition to low-carbon energy sources. Top on the list must be a price on carbon to reflect the true cost of continued fossil fuel emissions and to incentivize consumers, companies, and the market to find the cheapest, most effective means of reducing emissions. That was a few key excerpts from her testimony. She sounds a lot more scientific, doesn't she? For a body of lawmakers, we surely want them working with real science. A problem, though, is it's all pretty wonky. Okay, enough science. We all get it. Nonsense alternative science works for persuasion. It simplifies real science down to such a basic story that it's no longer scientific, but it's simple and therefore appealing, especially if the call to action is to do nothing, which is a more comfortable solution for people than big change. 
So the next tactic in these climate avoiders arsenal, pit the economy versus the environment. As long as there have been environmentalists, there have been opposition that says helping the environment hurts our economy. I'm tempted here to go down a long list of reasons why that's not the case, but it would take too long. The basic truth is our bodies, our communities, our cities, our suburbs, our rural communities, and our businesses all exist in the ecosystem of our planet. And when we harm our environment, the economic costs are extremely high. They catch up to us, and that's bad for our economy. See healthcare costs and lost productivity costs because of illness from fossil fuel pollution. See rebuilding costs post-climate disasters, hurricanes, flooding, and fires. See national security costs because of conflict and unrest arising from droughts that cause food shortages globally. And if protecting the environment was too costly for an economy to be able to thrive, how has the U.S. maintained the largest economy in the world while having to adhere to the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and all the regulations that have been put in place since 1970 with the founding of the Environmental Protection Agency? We have a long way to go towards clean air and water for all, but our air and water doesn't look and smell like China's or India's, for example, because we enacted environmental regulations and our economy has thrived and grown under these regulations. Of course, all of this is under threat now with the current EPA leadership under Trump. Despite all this, the economy versus environmental frame persists and provides climate-avoiding lawmakers their justification for inaction. While environmentalists haven't always enjoyed a loud echo chamber from business, that's a nice way of saying obviously businesses and industry have been opponents of environmental regulation, we are seeing something different with climate change. Ms. DePerna of CDP North America provided testimony speaking to the fact that businesses across the country and world aren't denying or avoiding climate change. CDP is a nonprofit running the global disclosure system for investors, companies, cities, states, and regions to manage their environmental impacts. Listen to some of her remarks to the committee. CDP North America, formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project, is a nonprofit that operates for the public good. Today, roughly 500 companies in the United States, including 70% of the S&P 500, disclose to us and through us their quantitative and qualitative information about environmental performance, their environmental performance, and the imperatives they perceive. Our standardized annual information request is signed off on by roughly 500 investor enterprises who represent over $94 trillion in cumulative assets and most of the financial service sector of the world. Sometimes it is said that American companies are concerned that strong policies will hurt business. On the contrary, companies are quite concerned about climate change itself. And following, I will share with you a few examples from almost all of your districts and states, and probably all, and refer you to my written testimony and other materials uh, of CDP uh, for further details. In Arizona and Colorado, for example, Arizona Public Services, 6,300 employees serving 1.2 million customers, has said, risks associated with forest fires are not new. 
But scientists have indicated that as the global temperatures increase, there is a greater risk of drought and a correlated increase in risk and intensity of forest fires. Potential threat is very real. Of course, we've heard very much today about the burning in California. It's not only the trees. The downgrade of most of the utilities in California affects directly American people. Uh, the, the, the credit rating downgrade is very, very significant, rating companies from stable to negative by Moody's and S&P and Fitch's. In Connecticut, Stanley Black & Decker, employer of nearly 60,000 Americans, has stated, climate change can have potentially devastating impacts on our supply chain should drought or flood occur. In Ohio, American Electric Power, which has 17,500 employees and 5 million customers across 11 states, including Texas, Louisiana, Kentucky, and West Virginia, in their SEC filing has said, Climate change risk is considered a major and material issue for AEP. And on the issue of regulatory uncertainty, AEP is on the record as saying, and additionally, additionally, in recent years, legal challenges to almost every major EPA rulemaking have added additional uncertainty and cost. While environmental regulations mentioned will have a large impact on our operations, the uncertainty regarding climate change regulation or legislation is a more challenging risk to manage. In Texas, companies such as Chevron, DuPont, and Total have described risks in their disclosure pertinent to the need for storm barrier protection for oil facilities. Florida, Harris Corporation, close to 17,000 employees, is worried that their data centers will be affected as temperatures rise and they lose, quote, ambient cooling potential. On the supply chain front, Johnson & Johnson, based in New Jersey with 134 employees, 134,000 global employees, is worried about climate change, extreme weather, disrupting not only demand for products, but disruptions in manufacturing and distribution networks of vital medicines and, af and afraid that it will affect the overall design and integrity of our products and operations. Atlanta, Coca-Cola, 90,000 companies, worried about agricultural products, including sugarcane, corn, and citrus. Coca-Cola has said the affordability of our products and ultimately our business could be negatively impacted. In Nevada, even Caesar's Palace is not immune from climate change. Its parent has said it virtually, cer virtually certain to see short-term increase in cost due to uh, a shortage of precipitation. Even before the Paris Agreement, we were getting risks on, on supply chain. Uh, and if it wasn't from soup to nuts, it's soup to tomatoes. For example, Campbell's Soup cited water risks and climate change is very significant and of concern. And ConAgra has said, quote, they've seen delayed tom tomato harvesting due to unseasonably cool weather. Dr. Pepper, of course, is worried about water. It's one of their main ingredients and has said a portion of our cost of sales, or $2.5 billion, could be at risk through increased costs to our supply chain. I could go on and on. I will not. I know my time is up, and I'll be happy to answer any questions. Thank you again. Okay, so climate avoiders can't point to big business opposing climate action anymore. Big business is ahead of Congress. And while they frankly need to be doing even more, they are working towards doing their part. Except the fossil fuel industry, of course. So how does it still work to pit economic concerns against climate concerns? Pivot to the plight of the poor, claim clean energy is too big of an economic burden on the poor. See, it's these climate-avoiding politicians concerned for the poor that is driving their inaction. Doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> it's not. Once again, it's a false frame, but allows for compelling anecdotes. Here's one of the members of the committee putting on his best, I'm not going to support climate action because I care about the poor, stick. And I had a, a 80-year-old lady say, I am scared 
uh, my cost of energy to heat my home is going up. And I was born in a home that only had a wood-burning stove, and I'm afraid I'm going to die in a home that only can afford a wood-burning stove. And I said, I'm really sorry to be the bearer of bad tidings, but probably your wood-burning stove is going to end up being illegal. Uh, But it is tragic, and it is the poor that suck it up uh, when we push these kinds of things. And this leads directly into their third tactic, a classically American brand of racism. Remember when our country's discourse on welfare reforms of the 1990s evolved to a trope of the welfare queen, a single black mother with a lot of kids gaming the system? For our listeners, for which the 1990s was before your time, the welfare queen trope actually goes back to the 70s and peaked in the 90s when welfare reform was a major national issue. Now, hopefully you all know that black people are not the major users of welfare in the 1990s or now. It's actually poor white folks who are enrolled in the largest numbers in welfare programs. The scammer, social pariah, black woman welfare queen trope is a myth. It is a depiction that played on straight-up racist stereotypes made to assuage the larger public support for welfare. American poverty is characterized as people of color, and especially black people. And in turn, black communities are imagined as all poor and without agency in their pursuit of anything beyond government support like welfare. One of the most powerful tactics, and it's been this way for decades, the fossil fuel industry uses to lobby our lawmakers is the evocation of very poor people of color who have to decide between food for their family and paying their energy bills. And while it is lobbyists and advocates paid or supported by the fossil fuel industry advancing these tales, the environmental movement plays into it as well. It is one of the most common questions from white-led environmental institutions. How do we ask people of color to prioritize the climate when they have all these other problems they're dealing with? It is fundamentally a racist framework that we as people of color aren't aligned with our own interests, like stopping climate change and getting pollution out of our communities because we are so poor that we can't account for consequences of climate change and pollution beyond our immediate bills. It's extremely paternalistic to suggest that we don't have our own agency on these issues. Why is it the tradition of progressive environmentalists to play into this? Because it takes the responsibility off of them to realize that perhaps they aren't doing a good job working with other communities. And that's why the movement has trended white and not because people of color don't care. The fossil fuel industry's poster children for anti-climate and clean energy policies are poor people of color. And the movement keeps falling for it. This isn't just an indictment on the fossil fuel industry. It's an indictment on our media who portrays black people as these completely inaccurate tropes and on all of us who consume these representations, buy into them, and don't challenge them. It's an indictment on our environmental movement that has a pretty bad track record on race, which we've discussed in many different contexts on Think 100%. So... How exactly does the fossil fuel industry push the narrative that clean energy is bad for people of color? The first element is a person of color willing to sell out. Enter Mr. Derek Holly. He is the president of an organization called Reaching America. He also appears from their website to be the only staff member at Reaching America. He is the other witness, besides Dr. Curry, called to testify by the Republican committee members. Let's listen to some of his testimony and exchanges with the members of the committee. 
Mr. Holly, uh, floor is yours, sir. Greetings, Chairman and members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. My name is Derek Holly, President of Reach America, an organization I developed to address complex social issues that are impacting the African American community. We're focused on solutions, not based on right or left wing views, but what makes sense for a more united America. One of the issues that we do the most work on is addressing and reducing energy poverty. What is energy poverty? Energy poverty exists when low-income families or individuals spend upwards of 30% of their total income on their electric bill. And when that happens, it puts people in tough tough situations and having to make tough choices like, do I eat today or do I pay the electric bill? Do I get this prescription filled or do I fill up my gas tank? I can't even give the kids a couple of dollars today because I got to pay the electric bill. And for many Americans, particularly in the minority community, we face these challenges every single day. And the community, the African-American community, we don't have the luxury to pay more for green technologies. We need access to affordable energy to help heat our homes, power our stoves, and get back and forth to work. And through Reaching America, I've had the opportunity to reach and talk to thousands of African-Americans who all talk about one thing, the question of rising cost of energy, along with the fees and subsidies that they have to pay that they don't benefit from, and how they struggle to keep up with it. Mr. Hawley, i, I, I got to come back to you. Now, I've heard statements that climate impacts different communities. Yes, sir. What communities are hit most by the policies like the Green New Deal? Minority and low-income communities. Um, just because we cannot afford the rising costs that will be associated with these policies. And like I said, many people are struggling right now to pay their, pay their energy bills. Here is Mr. Hawley being asked about his fossil fuel industry associations. I understand that you uh, have written a number of editorials, and, and obviously from your testimony today, um, support the development of fossil fuel uh, fossil fuels, coal, energy exploration, energy exploration. And I understand that your organization, Reaching America, um, that you've utilized that organization to, to make those views known. Is that is that a fair? That's a fair assessment. Uh, I also understand that your organization is a partner uh, with a group called, uh, let's see here, Explore Offshore. Is that correct? Uh, we are a member of that organization, yes. Okay, and that is a project of the American Petroleum Institute. Uh, yes, they are associated okay. with them, yes. Here is an exchange where he tries to explain cancer associated with the fossil fuel industry as merely a con, balanced out with the pros of fossil fuel energy. You know, my question goes to uh, Mr. Hawley. You know, I, I uh, heard your testimony with respect to uh, energy poverty, I think, as you described it, and, and the issues around affordability. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this. I, I think you referenced natural gas as being, quote, clean. Uh, according to the NAACP's Clean Air Task Air Force, or excuse me, Air Task Force report, African American communities face an elevated risk of cancer due to air toxic emissions from natural gas development. And over 1 million African Americans live in counties that face a cancer risk above the EPA's level of concern from toxins. Of toxics emitted by natural gas facilities. So I'm curious how you would respond to that statistic. My response would be um, all, uh, all of our energy sources have some type of downside to them, even coal. Uh, we look at the uh, winter. Well, I, I, I would agree with you there, Mr. Right, right. Coal, coal certainly has look, negative impact. If I could finish, gas. sir, if I could finish. Proceed. Um, even the wind turbines this winter, a couple weeks ago, couldn't operate. The downside. 
But we know for a fact that liquid gas, natural gas, is the cleanest way to, and the most affordable way right now for people in this country. Well, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand your comparison of, uh, of windmills to the, the toxins and potential cancer risks associated with natural gas emissions. He seriously just equated an instance where some windmills had an intermittent problem and cancer diagnosis. I'm sorry, I have a lot of cancer in my family. Some have survived, thank God, but others we have lost, like so many families, especially in places where I'm from in East Orange, New Jersey, where power plants and pollution sources are all around and in our neighborhoods. Shame on Mr. Holly. Mr. Hawley, we heard earlier from the governor of Massachusetts about all of their green energy policies, also the governor of South Carolina. My home state of California has adopted even more radical policies. They say they're helping the poor, but I just checked. In in Massachusetts, those policies have produced the 11th highest gasoline prices in the country. California now has, as a result of these policies, the second highest gasoline prices in the country. Uh, Massachusetts and California are tied for the sixth highest electricity prices in the country. How are poor people helped by paying needlessly sky-high prices for gasoline and electricity? Sir, you know, I, I don't have a lot of research point to it. All I have is my anecdotal research when I speak to the thousands of people that I speak to who struggle every single day to pay their electric bill. And the one thing that they talk about is just the need for affordable, reliable energy that we have here in this country. So if we can find a way to reduce the regulations that allow people access to that energy, I think it would go a long way in helping them to reduce the cost of energy for them. Mr. Holly talks about how he has no data to back up his claims. Uh, yeah, because all polling and research out there shows that black voters care more about climate and the environment than white voters. Same for Latino voters, Asian American voters, and Native American voters. Again, Climate Advocacy Lab and the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication are good places to go if you want to learn more about what the polling and research on attitudes about climate are across race. But just like one pro-climate scientist and one anti-climate scientist gives a false sense that there's a, a debate here, you know, you got one black person saying one thing while another says another, and it looks like two different perspectives, when in reality it's one person putting forth the truth and another who's spinning a story. Especially when the spun story plays into our biases that even the most progressive people hold about who poor black people are and what they are about based on nothing more than racist stereotypes. There was a moment during the hearing when Representative McEachin, who has been on Think 100% a couple times and who was on the committee, asked Rev to address Mr. Holly's claims. Let's listen. Reverend, I've enjoyed working with you over the past uh, two years, and I look forward to our continued partnership. In that vein, Reverend, I want to start with you. Um, Amazingly, it's been articulated today that there's a mistaken idea that moving towards a clean energy economy will hurt low-income communities and communities of color. I need you to speak to what the rising health and economic costs of climate change will be for those communities, specifically if we fail to move in that direction. Thank you, Congressman, uh, for that that question. First, we can definitely fight poverty and pollution at the same time. Um, And let me say clearly that the assessment that Mr. Holly respectfully um, I disagree completely with what he put forth as the um, um, idea that people of color 
are not concerned about the climate, about climate change, about the environment, about their health, um, and that aspect. I think, I think that one of the things here, we know that 200,000 uh, Americans are dying yearly because of air pollution. We know that we have millions of children and millions of adults who have asthma, emphysema, and are getting cancer. We know that 68% of people of color, particularly black people, are living within 30 miles of coal-fired power plants. We know that the deregulations of the mercury rule and, and the car rule and, the, 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 and many of the rules being put, that being rolled back by EPA would hurt people of color. And so one of the things here that I just want to say, and this is Mr. Holly, please understand what, what reason why I was making this assessment is this. For me as a minister, having buried a young, a young girl because of asthma, that mother no longer cares about how much that utility bill would have, would have, would have cost. That child I had to bury because of asthma, she would have much more been concerned about t- dealing with a particular matter in the atmosphere. And so the health concerns are one of the key concerns that are within the communities of color. The idea that we are not also concerned about our future and future generation is frankly absurd. The idea that we don't care that the snows are rising and that we are, will be first and worst, will be hurt by climate change is outlandish. The fact for me, being from Louisiana and seeing what happened in, in, in with Hurricane Katrina and with, or, or Harvey in Houston, those are the kind of things that have a huge impact on communities of color. So to sit up here, honestly, at this critical moment and to then purport the idea that people of color are somehow making the decision that they are more concerned about their energy bill than their health, their energy bill than their life, then that is out. That is literally ludicrous. If you think anybody, and had, and it was come to earlier about with, with, with this was uh, Black History Month and Civil Rights, the idea that also that poverty is also put upon with communities of color is also outlandish. That we know, this is not about just poor people of color, but poor white people are also due to the fact of the matter that they want clean air and clean water. As I said earlier, climate change is a civil rights issue. Yes, Rev, that's right. I honestly don't know how Mr. Holly sleeps at night. I talked to Representative McEachin this week and asked him to break down the subtext and the politics of all of this. Congressman McEachin, thank you so much for joining us again on Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Tell me, why was this hearing so important? Well, you know, we have to do away with this myth that the Republicans and some uh, some black folks who are allied with are trying to perpetuate, which is that a clean energy economy is not good for low-income communities or communities of color. And I just wish that your viewers and our listeners, rather, could have heard Dr. Yearwood, Reverend Yearwood, just dismantle that theory. I mean, he was not mm-hmm. sort of brilliant when he, when he did that. But, you know, they're out there trying to perpetuate this myth. You know, when I first got elected to Congress, the Koch brothers came into my district and actually had forums with pastors and other people. I don't know why fossil fuels were the best thing going for people of color. But ignoring the fact that it brings in uh, horrible public health consequences 
ignoring the fact that there are more jobs in the green collar economy than there are in the fossil fuel economy, uh, but just trying to brainwash our people into believing that this green collar movement is, is not good for them. Who is Mr. Holly and what does he represent? He is the president of an organization called Reaching America. It is a 501c4 organization. We didn't get to have enough time to get into it where his funding was coming from because we had to deal with the myth that he was perpetuating. So that's who he is. And apparently he goes all over the country telling us, uh, and, and he happens to be kissed by the equatorial son of Africa, just like you and I are. But he goes around telling folks that uh, this is not in their best interest when, when we know that moving to a clean economy is in the best interest of all Americans, particularly right. those low income and uh, people of color who bear the brunt of uh, bad environmental decisions. Why was Rev's response to Mr. Holly's testimony so important? One is because it was Rev. Two is right. because of the way he, he presented it, which was in respectful but measured and uh, yeah. passionate tones. And, uh, you know, when, when, whenever they want to roll out one of us to tell us what's best for us, it's always good to have a truth squad. And, and uh-huh. this time, it, it, Doc was the truth squad. So lastly, what comes next? How do we advance climate and environmental justice legislation? Well, we continue to do what we're trying to do, which is to, again, to borrow the words of Martin Luther King Jr., in his letter from a Birmingham jail to emphasize the fierce urgency of now. This is not a 2050 problem. This is a 2019 problem. Uh, This is a 2020 problem. We have children dying now from uh, from respiratory diseases. We have uh, children not learning as best they can because of the environmental conditions that they live under. We have property values being devalued because of uh, the environmental decisions that are being made around these particular areas. This is an urgent issue now. You know, the um, environmental movement has done a a lot of wonderful things. They have focused historically on 2050. And as I said to someone today, in 2050, I'll be 89 years old. That's a bonus year for me. Um, And I think most voters today think of 2050 as something that's off in the distant future that they don't have to worry about. But if we can convince people why they have to worry about it now in 2019, again, the fierce urgency of now, then we'll be able to move this agenda along. And I think we can do that. I believe we can too. And we've got your back for sure. And we appreciate that you are fighting for us and representing us in such a wonderful way. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. People of color and poor folks are getting hit first and worst by climate change. And because of an environmental movement that has made missteps over the decades, failing to build with the leadership of communities of color, the fossil fuel industry has exploited and exacerbated this weakness. We've been shut out of the wealth in the fossil fuel economy. We have paid the highest price in terms of environmental health, which costs us lives and costs us in health care costs and lost work in school. And we are positioned as pawns in the fossil fuel industry's political strategy. The weight of this is immense. I don't think we are even conscious of how much this weighs on us in so many ways. You can hear the weight of it all in some of Elizabeth Yampierre's testimony and remarks at the hearing. 
Buenos dias. My name is Elizabeth Jean Pierre. I'm the co chair of the Climate Justice Alliance, an intergenerational alliance of more than 68 frontline community organizations, movement networks, and movement support groups rooted in indigenous, African American, Latinx, Asian Pacific Islander, and poor white communities living on the front lines of climate change, as well as the dig, burn, drive, dump industries causing the climate crisis. I'm also executive director of UPROSE. It's a woman of color-led intergenerational organization founded in 1966, dedicated to environmental and social justice. We're home to the largest gathering of young people of color on climate justice, the Climate Justice Youth Summit. We're located in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, a diverse community of color made up predominantly of people of color and immigrants. We have a poverty rate of nearly 26% above the city average and far above the national average because climate change is going to impact frontline communities more than any other. And the people who are leading are women of color in these communities. Their children are the ones that are going to be impacted. We can't talk about these ecosystems devoid of talking about the impact on human rights and on the people affected. More than 5,000 Puerto Ricans died. That is not nothing. That is not just an ecosystem. That was an entire island that was affected. In the Philippines, in around 2012, 10,000 Filipinos died. We have had Superstorm Sandy that affected life all over New York City and New Jersey, and the infrastructure was destroyed. So I just really don't want to talk about this in, in silos, as if though we are not talking about whole communities and, and, and not treating this issue in a way that is holistic. This has been a heavy episode. It's always heavy when you look to uncover the most cynical aspects of our political process. Nadia talks about her friends discussing not wanting to have kids because of the state of the world. Listen to some of her powerful testimony at 16 years old. Thank you for inviting me to be here today. I would first like to acknowledge that we are on the land of the Piscataway Indian Nation, an indigenous tribe. My name is Nadia Nazar. I'm 16 years old, and I'm a junior in high school in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm an artist and environmentalist. I've dedicated my time and efforts to the community and animals on this planet since I was 12 years old. I am a founder of the youth-led climate organization Zero Hour. We say this is Zero Hour because this is Zero Hour to act on climate change. And the policymakers have for far too long put the interests of fossil fuel corporations and other carbon-emitting industries over the health and prosperity of the people, the wildlife, and this planet. The lives of my generation have been disregarded for far too long. You should put the interests of your future generations first, not just because it is the right thing to do, but because many of us have the right to vote in just a couple of years. We care about clean air and clean water, and we'll be voting for those who want to address climate change head on. Some of my friends say they don't want to have children because they're worried about the kind of lives they would have to live on a warming planet. In the future, asthma rates will be higher, there will be less access to food, and more extreme natural disasters and weather will occur, all due to climate change. Climate change not only threatens the future of my generation, but it continues to displace and kill people. We at Zero Hour believe that not only the, of the, the voices of the nation's youth have been ignored, but others as well. Women, people of color, indigenous communities, and some of our most vulnerable populations. How can we progress towards an equal and equitable society of justice if we can't listen to those who make up our country? I believe that everyone must work together, united and with compassion on this issue. And that is why we only win this movement with love. 
This is some of the wisdom that particularly communities of color can bring to the movement. It is an ancestral wisdom of Native Americans. It is cultural wisdom of people of color, or whatever you want to call it. But it is the wisdom that comes from historical, multi-generational struggle for survival. It is the wisdom that Gullah people hold, who have kept their identity and tradition alive through thick and thin. While they delay climate action, we need to be able to keep going. Indulge me as I wrap up this episode of Think 100%, in which we mapped out the most cynical of political hackery. With the same song the Geechee Gullah Ring Shouters started the episode with, Amazing Grace. May you hear the message and let it guide you and strengthen your spirit to build new bridges across communities and hear others a little better and be a part of the solution. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. for an amazing season one of Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. We are going to come back with an incredible season two in a few weeks. In the meantime, stay in touch with us on social media at Think 100 Show and at Hip Hop Caucus. Thanks for joining us this week on Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change, a hip-hop caucus platform. Let's keep this important dialogue going. Be a part of the conversation by following us on social media at Think 100 Show and at Hip Hop Caucus. Visit our website at think100.info for blog content, information on upcoming events, or to connect with us. 
If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Rate and review us or simply tell a friend. Climate change impacts all of us. And if we think 100%, we can achieve a 100% sustainable and just world together. Big 100, big 100, big 100, big 100.